Before he leaves to this podcast, Marcus wants to share the following Wellness Summit blooper with you. Damo, this is ridiculous. When we recently closed two-for-one ticket sales to the summit, we left the two-for-one banner on our website saying, get your two-for-one tickets. How do you think that's gone down with our loyal listeners? People are jumping online to buy two-for-one tickets, but our system has shut them down. Oh, dear, Marcus. So let's do this, MP. As our way to thank our listeners for their patience and to apologize for our feeble technology troubles, let's release 100 more seats at two-for-one. Let's do 50 double passes at the two-for-one rate. But Damo, we were just about to raise the price by 50 bucks a ticket. I know, MP, but I'm pulling rank. For one week only, Wellness Council listeners, you have one more chance to come to the summit at half price. Two days at the Melbourne Convention Exhibition Centre on September 10 and 11. That's 16 hours of powerhouse wellness at less than $10 per hour. You're so generous, Damo. This offer strictly expires at 11.59pm on Sunday, May 8th, so don't delay. To register for one of only 50 double passes, go to thewellnesssummit.com. TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. This is Up For A Chat with Cindy O'Mara, Karen Smith, and Kim Morrison. Here we are, Up For A Chat, about the hottest topics that are important to you, inspiring you to awaken the change within. I'm Cindy O'Mara. And welcome to The Wellness Guys. I'm Damien Christoph. Today, we are doing a special episode. I've got Cindy here with me in Sydney at the Bioceutical Symposium, and we're doing a, a co-branded podcast with uh, Up For A Chat and The Wellness Guys. And we're coming to you because we have probably the most eminent, most popular rock star in the, uh, the, the grain discussion at the moment, and that's uh, Dr. David Perlmutter. And he's joining us at the symposium. And David, this is an exciting time for us, and we'd love to welcome to both of our podcasts. Well, I am delighted to be here. I think this is uh, really a great experience for all of us to have such great thought leaders available to really do what a doctor is supposed to do. The word doctor actually in Latin means teacher, and that's what's going on here. So it's really an honor, very exciting to be part of all this. David, uh, it's, it's been a really fascinating um, event. It's been a, a very eye-opening event. And, and some of the things that I suppose we've taken for granted in nutrition and taken for granted in, in diet, um, I suppose have been a little bit exploded, which, which has been great. Um, I've had a number of questions throughout the weekend which I'd love to ask you about, particularly with regards to other grains, because it's quite clear that we can see that wheat has become a problem, and maybe that's because of glyphosate, or maybe it's because of the way in which you know, the gluten content is, is, is greater in wheat. What do you see as the biggest problem at the moment in nutrition and, and diet around grain? Is it confusion? Is it ignorance? I think that, you know, the biggest problem is really that grains are being so heavily promoted basically because they're cheap and there's huge profitability in it. It isn't a food that humans are really designed or adequately equipped to be consuming. Uh, As it relates to the gluten-containing grains, uh, wheat, barley, and rye, uh, there is a separate issue that relates to gluten that we can talk about in just a moment. But I think that when people are looking at grains in general, they have to recognize that as a group, aside from the gluten discussion, that this is a food that represents highly concentrated levels of carbohydrates. And that's a very important topic, quite apart from gliadin and gluten, and even the the genetic modification and spraying with herbicides like glyphosate. So just by virtue of the fact that grains are a rich source of carbohydrate entering into the human diet, that very simplistically creates a whole set of issues. 
You know, we've never eaten a diet that's high in carbohydrate. Humans have never had access to carbs until two important events occurred. One event occurred just very recently, and that was the development of agriculture just 10,000 years ago. And the other event was about two or 300 years ago as we developed the means to harvest simple sugars uh, from more complex carbohydrates. These two events have had a dramatic effect in a very detrimental way in terms of human health. Our diet for mo more than 99% of the time that we have walked this planet has been a diet that derived most of its calories, oddly enough, from uh, the dreaded fat. We have been fativores. I don't think I've ever used that word before. I, 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 I made it up. I own that. I better get the URL. <laughs> we have mark, been uh, fativores, basically. And, um, you know, fat is a, uh, a source, uh, you know, one of the macronutrients, fat, carbohydrates, and protein, uh, but is unique in that it is so highly concentrated in terms of calories, having more than twice the caloric content of carbs and protein. So it's been a very vital food source for us as humans for a couple million years. We have sought out uh, animal products and vegetables and etc. that have had fat in them, and it's allowed us to persevere and survive so we could have this conversation today. So uh, fat, as you pointed out, I think you're alluding to the fact that you know that's a food that has been so demonized over the past couple of decades, and for absolutely the wrong reasons, uh, the reasons of profitability in agriculture, to eat the whole grain goodness, and as such, get rid of the dietary fat. When you see on a label, low fat or no fat, that tells you that you're going to have to achieve your caloric intake from another source, and that by default is well known, is the carbohydrates, meaning the grains. Mm. So, you know, that is the whole kind of uh, landscape as it relates to how grains have entered into our uh, diets so aggressively uh, and what, you know, we'll discuss why that represents such a huge threat to our health. Mm. Oh, oh, what is the threat to our health? Uh, and especially, how did I know you were going to ask that question? Especially because you know you're a, a neurologist and um, a brain specialist. I figured, well, you must um, be looking at the brain and the nervous system, perhaps, like you do. Uh, yes, it's true. Uh, I'm, uh, in addition, a fellow of the American College of Nutrition, so I do take uh, nutrition very seriously. Uh, but now when we celebrate the dance between nutrition and brain health and functionality, I think it represents the dawn of a new era in, in neurology and in brain, brain health and in looking at brain disorders. The brain is exquisitely sensitive to our nutritional choices, our dietary choices, and as such, we can leverage that information to pave the way for a healthier brain, a brain that is more functional and a brain that is more resistant to succumbing to uh, any number of degenerative conditions that we fear. You know, it is often thought that, well, you know, uh, getting Alzheimer's is really luck of the draw, and that if you do, well, then you'll take a magic pill. We don't have a magic pill. There's no treatment, Cindy. As we have this discussion right now, there's no treatment, uh, nor is there any cure now or on the horizon for that dreaded disease, which, you know, affects more than 350,000 Australians as we have this conversation, uh, the rates of which are increasing dramatically. And yet we know wonderful 
published literature in very respected journals is telling us that a significant amount of this disease didn't have to happen if people would pay attention to some simple lifestyle recommendations. Your dad, um, and you often mention this in public, so I hope you don't mind me asking this question, he had Alzheimer's. And did this propel you to find an answer to the, the epidemic that seems to be happening in the Western world? Well, my dad uh, did, uh, in fact, uh, help set me on the course, but it wasn't because of his Alzheimer's. That certainly happened later on. He was a very accomplished, compassionate, well-trained neurosurgeon. And, you know, he began quizzing me in neurological diseases when I was probably 10 years old at the dinner table because that was pretty much his, his mistress. He was married to my mother, but his mistress was neurosurgery. So, you know, I, I would be at the dinner table and he'd be asking me questions about, well, what is the name of the syndrome that Italian men get that causes degeneration of their corpus callosum when they drink too much red wine? And, you know, that's what I, how I grew up. And, it's a great time conversation. How about that? Yeah. So, uh, so that said, um, and then I, as years went by, I would join him in the operating room, hold the retractors while he would extricate uh, brain tumors. So I really did... Uh, have a very early life exposure to brain science in general, became fascinated by it. Uh, and I've always been, I think, out of steps with my mainstream colleagues. I, I'm uh, happy to say in a good way. It, it, it did propel me to look at things in a different way. Uh, the cruel irony was the fact that here, the, the very illness that I basically dedicated my life to uh, took my father from me. And, um, you know, each day on the way to work, his, uh, his uh, residence, uh, assisted care facility, shared a parking lot with my office. And I would uh, have the opportunity every single morning uh, to visit with him and, uh, you know, gain firsthand unfortunate experience with what it's like to have your father not know your name anymore. And I carried that with me. Uh, you know, making the lemonade out of the lemons. I carried that with me uh, to my practice each day in dealing with families of an Alzheimer's patient. And, you know, oftentimes the, uh, the children, after I would see their mother or father, would pull me aside and say, you know, this is really rough, Doc. You, don't, you just can't imagine what it's like. And I would, I would explain to them uh, in, uh, with no shortage of words or emotion that I fully understood what they were going through and that it strengthened my resolve to, uh, to dig deeper and to look at those factors which are variable, over which we have control, that pave the way for this devastating illness. And it turns out that we have uh, great control over many of the factors that are strongly related to risk for Alzheimer's. And that's the great untold story. You know, when you read newspapers and you watch television, read uh, trade magazines, you basically uh, see statements that, um, you know, we're waiting for the, the magic bullet to appear, that mm. don't fret because your researchers are hard at work to find a cure for Alzheimer's. Mm. Well, that's not going to happen anytime soon. And yet, how heart-wrenching it is that the information about what you can do right now to prevent Alzheimer's, aerobic exercise, mm. higher fat, lower carbohydrate diet, mm. uh, higher levels of vitamin D, for example, are virtually neglected because you cannot monetize them. No one's going to profit over the dissemination of this information because there's nothing patentable here. 
You know, oh, what do you got to buy? Well, mm-hmm. you got to buy a pair of, of uh, athletic shoes, and you have to change your diet. You have to gain this information, and there's no guarantees. But you know, Alzheimer's is not a genetic disorder per se. True, there are some genes that are associated with increased risk. The APOE genes carrying the APOE4 allele certainly increases your risk. Uh, if you're heterozygous, your risk may increase four to five fold. If you're homozygous for APOE4, as much as 12 fold. But that's not a genetic determinant. That doesn't mean you are destined to succumb to that disease. Uh, that said, it's in that space the difference between determinism and predisposition where I exist, mm-hmm. where my work exists. Mm-hmm. This is fascinating. Yeah. Uh, you nearly, I think Cindy's going to try and sabotage this whole podcast. So I'm just going to have to jump in. <laughs> I, get, oh, I could I ask a say, million oh, I know, we're gonna have so many. Yeah. We're going to have so many questions. Yeah, you go. David, the grain issue is, is a big issue. It's, it's a huge issue. And, you know, uh, our populations and our countries um, economies almost ex- exist mm-hmm. because of grain. Now, there's, there's countries in, uh, in, around the world, Asian countries, for example, that have lived using rice. Um, and there'll be people listening to this thinking, okay, yes, I, I get the, I can draw the, the link between grain and sugar, but what about the Asians? Uh, they, they're eating rice, are they getting um, dementia and neurological diseases the way that we are in the West? I certainly don't think it's fair, uh, with all due respect, to focus on the fact that Asians eat rice and what is their risk for certain illnesses uh, as you know one single variable. We have to sure. take a step back and understand that they have their unique genomes. They certainly have their unique microbiomes, which yes. influence uh, their um, response, their body's response to the very foods that they eat. Yeah. Uh, and beyond that, you know, what we're seeing now in Asians is uh, a dramatic surge in various diseases that are associated with westernization of their diet. Of course. Uh, in cl- including diabetes and obesity. It's rampant. Mm. And make no mistake about it, as we circle back to brain, type 2 diabetes has been associated with a fourfold increased risk for Alzheimer's. So there are multiple mm. factors that need to be considered in this. Uh, apparent um, dichotomy between their diets and disease risk. The, let's be very clear uh, that the Western diseases are, are rampant and exploding more uh, aggressively in uh, Asian countries than they are in countries where they've already been established. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there's so it's uh, you're saying it's a big draw, big a big um, link to say that just because they eat rice. You're saying there's, there may be, there's definitely other factors. Yeah, there's other factors, but uh, I'm, I'm not castigating eating rice. I, uh, and I think if you look at what typically an, an Asian would eat, they might have a serving or two of rice. Yeah, but not 12 servings of rice. And it's not just uh, 12 servings of rice, but yeah. it's it, having a couple of servings of rice, okay. But when you look at what uh, we in uh, Western cultures would do, it would be, yeah, you might have a couple of servings of rice, but you started your day with... <laughs> A glass of orange juice. Why do I look at that? Because a 12-ounce glass of orange juice is 9 teaspoons of sugar. It's 36 grams of carbohydrate. That's before the croissant or the bagel or the short stack of, I don't know what you call pancakes here. Pancakes. Pancakes, there you go. Who knew? Uh, (laughs) Along with the syrup that's poured on top and and the fruit. So you're saying it's an overload of sugar. It's an overload of sugar and more complex carbs. This is so important. It is. uh, 
abs those you know the subtitle of grain brain was the toxic effects basically of wheat carbs and sugar on your brain yeah and uh, you know when the New England Journal of Medicine in September of 2013 publishes a report which looked at a group of close to six uh, of 3,000 individuals and did a very intensive study of them at the beginning of the study. What did they do? They measured their fasting blood sugar. That's it. They followed this group for 6.7 years and what did they find? That even those individuals who had a subtle elevation of blood sugar well below the level of diabetes initially had a dramatic increased risk of becoming demented. So we've got to redefine not what is a normal blood sugar because norms are calculated in terms of averages, in terms of standard deviations from the mean. We've got to look more aggressively at what is ideal, what is optimal in terms of these biometrics that we are so fond of looking at. And you know, beyond that, we understand now not just that there is correlation between elevated blood sugar and uh, risk for dementia, but we understand it from a mechanistic perspective as well. We know that one of the most powerful predictors of shrinkage of the hippocampus, your brain's memory center, correlated with Alzheimer's disease, is the A1C, the glycated hemoglobin. So that's a marker we know of average blood sugar used by physicians who are treating type 2 diabetes and type 1 uh, to measure not what is the blood sugar moment to moment, but what is the average blood sugar over, over time. But that said, the process of glycating our proteins, and it's well beyond the protein hemoglobin that is glycated, when proteins are glycated, they are changed. And as such, the body begins to not recognize them as fully functional as they were, and it's a process that dramatically increases both inflammation and free radical-mediated stress. The cornerstones of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, coronary artery disease, type 2 diabetes, and even cancer. So it begins to really uh, broaden the, the notion that even subtle elevations of blood sugar are mechanistically related uh, to some very global events. I mean, these are the top degenerative conditions that we fear the most. We often hear the, the term glycation or methylation. Will you explain the glycation of protein? Yeah, uh, and glycation and methylation are in very, very different yeah. camps. So the methylation discussion really has to uh, centers around the change of gene, of gene expression by virtue of the fact that receptors will, will bond a methyl group or an acetyl group, and as such, uh, genes can be turned on and turned off. And I think, you know, that's certainly conceptually something uh, that's relatively new. Uh, back in my day in medical school, uh, when our textbooks were written on papyrus, well, not that long ago, <laughs> but a long time ago. Uh, He's that, a comedian. <laughs> um, you know, we pretty well conceived of our genome as being you know, this 23,000 uh, unit gift from our ancestors that was locked in the glass case and determined very much everything about us. You know, that was the camp of uh, our uh, nature. The other camp was the nurture camp. In other words, what was our physiologic and pathologic response to various environmental confrontations? And, you know, this dichotomy between nature and nurture, between our genetic legacy and our environment, really divided people into two great uh, camps that couldn't see eye to eye. 
And now we've learned that there is a beautiful dance that occurs between our hardwired genetic legacy and our environment. The reason that's so empowering is because it offers us up the opportunity to actually change our genetic expression. Uh, it's been estimated that some 70% of our gene expression that relates to health and longevity is actually under our control by virtue of our lifestyle choices, dietary choices, stress uh, reduction, uh, and from my perspective, perhaps most importantly, uh, exercise choices as well. So, um, I hope everybody listened to that. Yeah, absolutely. And the importance such of a that. Crucial point, crucial yeah. point. Yeah. And, and it's it's often debated, isn't it? Yeah. It's often debated, particularly in the medical field or medical fraternity here in Australia, where they're very negative towards any kind of lifestyle modification other than what appears in the research, the double-blind placebo-controlled studies. Anything that's observed is kind of dismissed as not being high-quality evidence. Um, and so the, the, the construct or the, the thought that there's epigenetic control and, and that we could, in fact, alter our genetic expression through lifestyle interventions mm. is, is largely dismissed in Australia. So it's great that you raised that mm. point. David. Thank you. Well, you know, people are generally down on what they're not up on. I mean, to, to <laughs> deny the notion like that, that uh, we have that. control of our genetic <laughs> yeah. destiny, I mean, is, is out of date. Yeah. Uh, even mainstream pharma is looking at, you know, modification of gene expression for treatment of illness. We're seeing that now. So uh, old school wants to believe that your genes are, are again, hardwired and a story. Mm -hmm. And lifestyle choices don't mean anything. But, and when we see uh, a recent publication in the Journal of Neuroinflammation that talks about uh, how uh, in comparing two groups of, of large groups of, of adults, th those involved with higher energy expenditure on a daily basis by virtue of their choice, their lifestyle choice to engage in aerobic exercise, have preservation of the size of their hippocampus and actually growth of their hippocampus, regrowth of brain cells, which again, in, in my day in medical school, the notion that your brain could grow new brain cells was, yeah. you know, was a blasphemy. We were basically stuck with the notion that, look, you were given a certain number of brain cells and every time you drank a beer, you'd lose 80,000 brain cells. And if, you know, truly, that. if it yeah. weren't for the fact that we do have neurogenesis and can repopulate our brains, there's a fair chance that I wouldn't be here having this conversation with you right now. Uh, but, but that said, uh, it's good that these notions are overturned. Mm -hmm. um, there's a place for being iconoclastic, I believe, and um, certainly um, some of our uh, ideas may be proven wrong, and I welcome that. Uh, because that means we're learning and we're making progress. If we stay with things as they are, that's not going to lead us anywhere. Uh, Ronald Reagan, President Reagan, once said that status quo is a Latin term for the mess we're in. And we'll only stay with the mess we're in, with ever-rising rates of Alzheimer's and other degenerative conditions, unless we embrace new ideas. If we sit around and wait for pharma to develop a cure for Alzheimer's by trying to focus on ridding the brain of beta amyloid, which is a ridiculous proposition, uh, then we're going to be maintaining the status quo. It's time that we break the mold and welcome to the table the notion of preventive medicine as it relates to the brain. Uh, John Kennedy said that in his inauguration that the time to fix the roof is when the sun is shining. 
So that's the message. Mm. It is for all of your listeners who may be uh, intact cognitively. Hopefully they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, And especially those like myself who have a positive family history and as such are at increased risk for Alzheimer's. The time to act is now. The time to change your uh, exercise regimen and embrace aerobic exercise on a daily basis is now. And if you need to understand that mechanistically, let's take a step back. Can I... I'm just. I'm going to ask you a question here. Oh, we've spoken about neurodegenerative diseases or disorders. So we're talking about um, dementia, um, Alzheimer's. Are we talking about multiple sclerosis as well? I think that you know the. It's very important to delineate between splitters and groupers. And what do I mean by that? You know, we can have discussions about multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, uh, Friedreich's ataxia, Bassin-Kornzweig syndrome, if you like. But I prefer to take a step back and look at the broad mechanisms that unite all of the degenerative conditions, even beyond the brain. Mm -hmm. And it gets back to our fundamentals of inflammation and inflammation downstream-induced free radical-mediated stress. So certainly a situation that is more perhaps autoimmune than Alzheimer's, being multiple sclerosis, uh, has its nuances. But when we recognize that ultimately what is digesting myelin is, a, again, this action uh, of immune dysregulation, and there's, there's a lot of crosstalk uh, between these issues. And it takes us to a place of wanting to localize in human physiology where it all starts. MS is primarily not a brain disorder, uh, nor is uh, Alzheimer's, nor is uh, ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, mm-hmm. uh, these are, nor is autism. A, a major hot button. These are primarily gut-related disorders. As you've learned in this uh, symposium, the set point of inflammation, the set point for balancing the immune system, is in and around the one-cell layer of the gut epithelium. And that's a very compelling notion. When you have world-respected experts like Dr. Alessio Fasano from Harvard mm. driving home the point that this is where it all begins. This is where autoimmunity begins. It, it, it seems at first blush to be hard to connect the dots between lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or celiac disease or type 1 diabetes or MS for that matter uh, to the gut. But this is that connection. This is the gut connection to systemic issues. And, you know, here I am having practiced medicine for 30 years uh, and having had been focused for a long time on looking at the brain uh, for answers to our brain-related disorders, which, you know, uh, they asked Slick Willie, why do you rob banks? He said, that's where the money is. Well, why do you look towards the brain for answers? That's looking in the wrong place. Mm -hmm. To look outside the brain, to look south of the foramen magnum, and look at the gut has opened up a brand new panorama for us, a playing field that we are absolutely going to move ahead and leverage to really uh, get to the root of these problems. We, you're not treating depression with an antidepressant medication. You're treating the smoke but ignoring the fire. Similarly, the drugs that people give to autistic children, the uh, cholinesterase inhibitor drugs that are given to Alzheimer's patients that are basically ineffective. Not basically, they are ineffective, uh, but yet represent a multi-billion dollar industry. Do not treat Alzheimer's disease at all. They treat 
an attempt to treat the end product, which is this deficiency of acetylcholine in certain areas of the brain, the question would be, well, why did it happen in the first place? Be the, be the uh, fence at the top of the cliff rather than the ambulance at the, the bottom. bottom. Right, and you know, um, it's very important that we focus on uh, the fire, not the, the fire engine that's arrived on scene. I think um, I've seen your evolution. Like I've watched you, um, I, I read your book, Grain Brain, and then I read your book, Brain Maker. And I would recommend, if people are interested in Absolutely. the information that you've got, and, and read, I think, Grain Brain first, and then go into Brain Maker. Because one addresses um, the whole grain and sugar thing, and the, the next one then goes into the microbiome, which I, I've just, as soon as it came out, I downloaded it. I couldn't wait for the book <laughs> and read it within a couple of days. And I just think you say it simply. It's not complicated. Like some of the people that we've been listening to, I'm just like a deer in headlights just because they're just getting straight into the alleles and all of this stuff. And But you just explain it so beautifully. So um, if people want more information, I think they're their best sources. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate hearing that. I mean, I, I just checked my books this morning uh, here in Australia on Amazon and found that uh, Brain Maker and Grain Brain are number one and two in, in your country right now. Uh, yeah. Well, it deserves to be. Well, yeah, you know absolutely. what? I, 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 I'm, uh, that's very, very validating for me. Yeah. I think, you know, just the fact that, that that's what I elected to do, and then I come here and you embrace that, it, it's, it's very, very... Um, it's, it confirms that I feel you know I'm on the right track in, in, in my chosen mission. So I I appreciate that. And I just want to put a little plug in here. I'm yes. have to. Yes. Is it Dr. Perlmutter's in my in your media? documentary? Oh, yes. What's with wheat? That's right. <laughs> Dr. Perlmutter, thank you so much oh, for joining us pleasure. on both Absolutely. of our podcasts. Yeah. It's just been a, it's a delight. It's a career highlight for me to be able to interview you and meet you in oh, person. Gosh, thank so you. thank you so much for sharing time with both Cindy and I for our podcast. Thank you. Wonderful. And I sure, uh, again, appreciate the opportunity. So, guys, make sure you go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash the wellness guys. And forward slash up for a chat. And make sure you give the up for a chat girls a five-star rating. Yeah. Go to <laughs> iTunes. <laughs> That's right. And tell us what you thought of this episode. Share this yeah. podcast with your friends and family and other strangers you think need a wellness update. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Make sure you leave us a five-star rating as well. Don't just give the girls one. <laughs> and until next week, begin creating wellness into your lives. Lead by example. And let's change the world's health together. Join us next week on The Wellness Guys Show. And bye for now. <laughs> and up for a chat. <laughs> bye for now. See you guys. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.